lived in Ananda for so long, 30 years, and uh, 30, yeah, 30 years. 30 years, actually 30 years, Saturday. It's my anniversary. Oh. Woo, came and went. Okay. Um, uh, huh, what do you know? I was going to actually pay attention to that, but I forgot. <laughs> Completely. So be it. Um, and the first uh, 10 or 12 years, we just lived so isolated. That was 71, you know, into the early 80s, because we didn't have electricity. So we didn't have radio, we didn't have television, nothing. It was really a just marvelously separated from reality sort of life. Or actually marvelously focused on reality sort of life. So um, that's all right. Just go right in here. We depend on you. <laughs> the video wouldn't be the same without your forums going past us about this point. Um, so I sort of just never... Um, I never got engaged in popular culture after a certain point. You know, people... A lot of people know television shows and will make references and just never, ever saw any of it and just sort of grew up in this happy, childlike world of Ananda. And it's so interesting to me because I, I take that sweetness for granted because I've never had to become a grown-up. Um, but I, I'm always, I, just this afternoon we were went to the uh, high school graduation for family in the church and uh, it was a very, it was a fine private school and it was very nice kids, but when it was time for the, the closing song, it was sort of like, I mean, I didn't know they actually were having a closing. I didn't realize what was happening. I said, David, they need a piece of music. You know, we put on programs all the time. They need music. And he pointed out they were about to sing. And so the kids got up and they sang. And we had all these, you know, just beautiful high school seniors singing some song. And they, But it was some popular song, you know, and it just, it wasn't horrible. I mean, it wasn't like um, painful. Like they can be just really, they can really hurt your ears. But it was just dippy. You know, it went... <laughs> I mean, it just sort of... It just didn't have... It didn't go anywhere. You know, it just kind of went in circles and kind of subconsciously roiled around for a while. And the kids all liked it. And I thought, you know, music can be so consciousness changing. And of course, it is. It was the consciousness that they wanted. But what a shame. You know, it's just really a shame the way music is being wasted these days. Because it either just completely corrupts, or it just takes you nowhere. But uh, it's just, it's a sign of the times. What else would be popular? But, I mean, when our, our little songs, which I know when people first come, they kind of like <laughs> roll their eyes. and You have to kind of be here for a while before you just really... <laughs> Then he had to make a miracle again. So much fun. <laughs> I recall going to a a cocktail party, which I don't usually go to. Um, when when I was working on trying to make Ananda into a California city, which was a, a marvelous project, which is a long, glorious story for some other time. Um, when we were trying to break free, Ananda has been tortured by the neighbors and by the, the planning commission and by the planning department because we don't, uh, the Ananda village, I mean, because when we started that, that, you know, cooperative spiritual community, it just doesn't exist. We went in to, like, try to have them regulate us and they would just, like, read cooperative spiritual community. They looked at all their books. <laughs> First they told us we were a subdivision, which we weren't. Then they thought we must be condominiums, which we weren't. You know, it was just a horrible mess and it took years and years and years and years. 
you years to straighten out in many public hearings. And so we looked it up once and found that the only the only um, governmental entity, you know, sort of sort of a nation, which was not really an option, that has uh, control over its own land use is a municipality, a city. So we decided that we would turn Ananda Village into a California city, which was very cheeky because it was just a big farm, you know. <laughs> but we, we almost succeeded, or I should say we gave a, we had a good run for our money. Um, why am I telling this story? Oh, yes, in the middle of it, we were working with this a man in town, and uh, it was Christmas, and he invited us to his Christmas party. He was a, an engineer or something. He was a big... He was a big cheese on the commission that voted, so we were doing our very best to glad-hand him right into a yes vote, which didn't succeed, but he invited us to his annual Christmas party. And so we went, and it's a very small town up there, and was even smaller then, Nevada City and Grass Valley. And so it was he was a, a high-level person in the scene, and so we were invited to this party, and I, whoever... Probably Dallas Atkins, this woman who was working on the project with me. We went to this party. And we were there for a while, and it gradually occurred to us that nothing was going to happen. There was no group singing. There was no P.G. Woodhouse. You know, there was just like nothing. We were just going to drink. And I realized that the entire entertainment was that people would gradually get a little bit drunk. And as they got drunk, they would begin to entertain themselves. You know? <laughs> it's like nothing was going to happen. And it, it actually it really hurt my heart. Because I thought there's so many ways that we could have a good time together. And we were just like there to have a good time together. But it was just all based on becoming a little inebriated. And and then we would have a good time just by kind of standing around. So we, we waited until, we stayed until the consciousness really began to shift. And then we made our excuses. <laughs> but I thought nobody, I mean, not only is Ananda a teetotaling environment, but we just do things, you know. We have funny skits. We entertain ourselves. I sort of figure when hard times come, I mean, really hard times, you know, when the when the uh, rolling blackout is is the re- the rolling white on, you know, like it's you know, just <laughs> and we all run out of money and we can't work or whatever's going to happen to us. We're all going to have so much more fun because we'll just go back to entertaining ourselves like we all used to do. And I sometimes think at Ananda we'll have the most fun of all because we just enjoy each other so much and. Right now we don't have enough time to just do things together. So it'll be a nice time. When you live as poor as we've lived at different times, poverty doesn't seem so unnerving. I always drew the line at heat and food, I must confess. (laughs) If we go below heat and food, I think I'm going to be a little upset too. But you can go way, way down, especially when nobody else has anything. So every time I must confess that the stock market starts going down, I start cheering it downward, which is... I'd like to finish the sanctuary first. But <laughs> I have a few selfish points of view on the thing. But <laughs> and the chapel. And the chapel. Well, maybe we can do a finish our build-out. I'm just going to settle for the sanctuary now, but nonetheless. Well, that was a long... That was, that was reflections on being at a high school graduation today. So, today we are talking about communication. As Wayne says, having knocked sex off last week, we'll just deal with communication this week. Just... <laughs> Did you? <laughs> you can get the tape, Vivian. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah, we're going to finish the sanctuary somehow. <laughs> In fact, we just 
We just met with a consultant today. We just added another big ticket item to the sanctuary model that wasn't in the plan. Have you seen the words, you know, paste them on the wall in paper? The plan is actually to put those on the wall in etched glass with light behind it. I mean, it just, actually, it's going to be the most beautiful thing in the temple, I think. It may be the most expensive thing in the temple, too, you know, because it's eight feet pieces of glass and tubes of not, of, uh, it's going to be neon. And what the man suggested to us is that we illuminate the glass with white light and then we put a, a, a blue neon tube behind it. So we'll have an aura of blue light around it. And then there, in each of the little panels up at the ceiling level, there's, will be a line from, uh, the Palm Samadhi, Master's Palm Samadhi. So we'll see. Big box, but really beautiful. I think it's going to just make the chapel. So. <laughs> Pardon me? It'll be really, really exquisite. With that on and the altar on, it's just going to be so beautiful. I see now, I never understood how ladies could just like keep remodeling their houses, you know, or buy new houses to remodel. But I can see you just kind of get into this. Go from room to room and it gets really fun. Okay. Um, I've talked so much about communication from the beginning to the end of this class. Before I go on, are there any questions from last week or from any other week that you would like to ask before I go forward? Anything lingering? Well, we, yes, Marilyn. Mm-hmm. Well, the actual question is: the question is, when do you give up? You know, when do you keep on, and when do you give up? <laughs> well, but the, but the um, ultimately, our happiness is our own responsibility, and circumstances are always neutral. That's the first answer. You know, you're happy or sad depending on your state of mind, and. And Swamiji sometimes says in the most unromantic possible way, if it's a happy marriage, it's a delusion. And if it's a sad marriage, it's a delusion. <laughs> it's just that we prefer one of the delusions to the other. But they're equally delusions in the sense that our happiness comes from inside of us and our joy should be unconditioned. We have this, we see a great deal of difference between the two of them. But in fact, from the point of view of the soul, neither is, you know, if one makes us unhappy and one makes us happy, we're equally captured. Of course, I will con- condition that by saying what Swamiji said to me once, which I liked. He said, we learn from having our desires frustrated, but we learn more from having them fulfilled. Because if they're merely frustrated, we can't help but hold the thought that we would be happier if they were fulfilled. And so if we're just frustrated, we'll just cling to it. But eventually when our desires are fulfilled, then we have a different kind of understanding which is not that, oh, it's so terrible to be happily married, what an awful burden it is. But it's more that, oh, I see how happy this makes me. It makes me just this happy. It doesn't make me infinitely happy. It doesn't take away from me my divine responsibility. It doesn't solve my longing for union with the Spirit. It's just a happy marriage. Now, that's a big thing, but compared to the infinite, it's not much. But usually we can't overcome these things until we get them. Um, that's why it's very fortunate, for example, to be born into a comfortably uh, a, a wealthy family. Because it, in the Bhagavad Gita it describes when Krishna asks, when Arjuna asks Krishna, because uh, Krishna is describing this great effort to reach God, and Arjuna says, what if I give up all the pleasures of this world and try for that infinite freedom and don't make that either? I was left with nothing. 
And Krishna's answer, the beginning of it is that very famous statement, my devotee is never lost. But, but then he goes on to say, whatever effort you make brings you closer to the goal. And if in one lifetime you make a heroic sacrifice and yet don't have the strength to carry on, that puts you, gives you good karma for the next life. And then they list out all the possible things that that means. The highest good karma is to be born into a family of devotees. You know, to, to have devotees for parents, such births are very hard to attain, or because devotees don't have that many children, generally speaking. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then to be in a community of people seeking God. But also not very far below that is to be born to wealth. Because if you're born to wealth, from a very young age, you get to find out what it gives you. And so you don't have to spend your whole life trying to acquire it, only to discover at the age of 40 or 50 or 60 that it really doesn't hold what you hoped it would hold. But if you grow up comfortably having everything you want, often by the time you're 20, you just know it's not that you necessarily scorn it, but it's been fulfilled and you don't, it doesn't hold any mystery for you anymore. You know, people often ask us, for example, why there aren't more black people in, within Ananda. And there are some, but not a lot. And it's, it's because souls being born into black bodies, and that's important to say because there's no, there's no such thing as black people. We don't have, or Jewish people or Catholic people. We're just karmic groups that we're born into. The, the karma of the black people in this country right now is to be pulling themselves up through education and hard work you know, into a level where they can have the American dream. And so a group like ours that says, oh, it's all a snare and delusion, you don't really want it, is like, you know, that's easy for you to say because you've had it all this time. It's not, it's not attractive um, and until you reach the point where you have had it. And it just, it's not enough. And so you go on from there. Um, now, coming back to, so watching today, watching the children graduate from this very nice private school, I just thought, what an incredible upbringing these children have had. You know, they've just been raised with such, um, you, know, the, you know, in this area, rich people are for the most part self-made and, you know, dynamic, and it's not just kind of a snooty, we've always had money and we look down on the world kind of atmosphere. It's people who have been very creative and very dynamic, and so it's a, it's a different kind of wealth for the most part here. It's, more, it's much more interesting. <laughs> Um, and open, not snobby. Um, but, you know, these kids have just had anything they wanted to do, basically, they've been able to do for the most part. And some of them have been ruined by it, but most of them have not. Because So you see that just like at, at, at 20, they have such an expansive sense of the possible. Now, all of this had to do, you know, coming back to where you were asking about what do you do if only one person is interested. And see, I didn't forget. Uh, <laughs> I did forget for a while there, but... <laughs> I kept going until I got it. <laughs> About five of eight, I forgot. Now it's eight o'clock. And if I stay here long enough, I might even be able to think of the connection. <laughs> I was saying, too, that it doesn't matter. Oh, you know, it's just like, of course it's easier if there's somebody to work with. I know where I started. Where I started was saying, but really, this is all about oneself anyway. But the, the, question, the great question in life is, when do you endure and when do you create a new alternative? And that's, that's entirely and totally a personal question. There's just absolutely no way that that can be answered in general terms. Depends on what kind of karma you're balancing. Depends on whether there was ever anything between you in the first place. It depends on what your patterns are and all of that. 
But Yogananda was not uh, by any means strict about lifelong marriage. In fact, he was quite cynical, saying that, you know, as he put it, most marriages were not really marriages anyway, in the sense that there was no soul union. There was nothing profound happening. And he, most might be too too big a word, but too many marriages that he saw did not have any deep connection. And so to move in and out of it was not really a deep thing. Um, and so it, it much depends, too, on what is the real nature of your connection with someone. Is there some profound soul union that's run into trouble for a while? Or is it just a learning experience that you've both been going through? I remember this woman once was involved in really a pretty awful relationship with a fairly awful man. But with all due respect, she was no prize herself. <laughs> and she came to Swamiji with this very sort of superstitious... Superstitious is the only word I can think of. Um, she wasn't quite as bad as this experience that happened to me at East-West when I first came here uh, 15 almost years ago, 14 and a half. Just to kind of get into the scene, um, I became a, a reader at East-West when they were still over in Menlo Park. And we didn't quite know what to call me, so we called me an intuitive reader. It, it was a, a short-lived and pretty unsuccessful experiment. Because things happened like this woman walked into this little room where I'm sitting, and she sort of sits for a moment, and then she says, Is Walter the one? <laughs> now, I'm, I'm pretty straightforward. I said, Walter who? The one what? You know? <laughs> I mean, like, I knew what she meant, but... I, and and then we proceeded, and I proceeded to say to her, essentially, I'm a complete stranger. I've never seen Walter, and I've never seen you before. Why are you asking me this? <laughs> you know? Do you like him? Is he nice? You know, like... <laughs> it just seemed like, don't put your the responsibility of your happiness in my hands. You know, I happen to have the integrity to deal with you, but somebody else might say... <laughs> yes, my child. No, my child. You know, it's like, what? And so I refused to take her money, and I just scolded her roundly for coming and asking me such a ridiculous question, which she didn't like. And then, pardon me? No wonder it was a short-lived. It was short-lived. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, this is not for me. No, I just, I went to Jacqueline afterwards. I said, this isn't going to work. <laughs> really. The only people that, that it worked for were people who came because they saw me here, and they came there, you know. But um, but this woman came to Swamiji and said, essentially, you know, well, you know, essentially, I hate this man, and he hates me, and we do nothing but fight, but is he the one? <laughs> like this, same sort of question. And Swami answered her in a way that very, was very important. He said, look, honey, I mean, he said it more, I'm going to say it the way he said it to me afterwards. He didn't say it to her quite like this. I was sitting there. He's very, very gracious. He was more more direct later, which is... You know, you, my dear, have so much to learn that you could pretty much learn it with just about anyone, you know. <laughs> he said, you have to be very, very evolved before your karma becomes so specific, you know, that there really is just one for you. Otherwise, like, we have a lot of lifetimes, we just toss it in the air and just work on this or work on that. And uh, he he did go on to say that if you hate each other and fight all the time, that's a clue. <laughs> what does this mean? What does this mean? You know? <laughs> hmm. 
sometimes it's just not happening. And to just exhaust yourself, uh, Elizabeth reminded me of uh, the wonderful statement that a friend of ours made when she finally gave up on a long, unhappy marriage. She said really simply, I just didn't have any more joy to give it. Which is just a real simple answer. You know, she'd given it all the joy she had and she was just joyed out. And, you know, he wasn't a bad man, but he just it wasn't a good match. And she'd given it her all and that was it. That's what I often say to people. Well, you know, can you do it? Do you have anything? Do you have any new creative thoughts? Do you have any positive energy? Swamiji asked a woman once, could you actually, could you live with him any longer without being absolutely miserable? <laughs> and uh, she said, yes, I think so. He said, well, then give it another try. You know, and then she reached the point in that particular case where she was absolutely miserable. But but you can't also, in, in implied in your question, which is not exactly your question, you may actually be well suited to your partner. You may be well suited for one another, but you're trying harder than he is or he's trying harder than you are, either because he or she is having a lousy karmic period or it's just not always a 50-50 split. You know, sometimes women, or sometimes men, but more often women complain that they're doing all the work in relationship. I say, welcome to life. It's just the way it is. People, he fixes, he may fix the car, he may do all the, you know, all the car mechanic too. It's just, we're just oriented the way we're oriented. And, um, but sometimes it is hopeless and it's just better to just cut your losses and go on. I laugh a little bit. I have a friend who has tremendous endurance. But as a result, she's not all that creative. Because she, when she sees a problem, she endures it. I have very little endurance. I just have very, very low tolerance for situations I find unpleasant. So as a result, I'm a great problem solver. And I'm real creative because I can't stand. So many things just bother me so fast. I've just developed the capacity to find an option. And, you know, somewhere in the middle between us is the best reality. So sometimes, karmically, you may be a person who just tends to just sit there and, and endure, and you, you might not really have anything more to learn about that. You might What you may need to learn is to take initiative and decide and, and go on and have the courage, and, and somebody else may need to just sit still and give it a chance and not always be just hopping the fence to look for a new reality. Or what they think of as a person who's not really trying may not be true. You know, they just might not be trying the way you want them to try. It's just entirely different. And of course, depends if there are children involved, depends on whether this is your second, third, or fourth marriage, you know. These things all influence the way the story goes and whether you're such a bargain yourself. <laughs> you know, sometimes we're just too well-matched. It's just too painfully well-matched. And we just kind of think that we can just go out in the street and find another good one. And uh, we really pretty much got the best that we're going to get. That's a hard thing to say or see. But sometimes it's just true. You know, this is my match. And I just really need to stay here and work it out with this one. Especially with all the respect, the older we get. You know, it's like you just drive it off the lot and it loses value. <laughs> flexible, it's harder to start over. I was joking with someone today, this is especially true for women, remember when that horrible statistic came out? Usually my relationships classes are full of single women, this is not the case this time, but 
That statistic came out where somebody did, did a, uh, an analysis and decided that a woman over 35 with a college education was more likely to be kidnapped and killed by a terrorist than she was to remarry. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was, a, yeah, it was, it was, it caused a great, um, a great uh, upsurge in uh, visits to psychologists by women over 35. You know, um, Swami's answer to that was there. His, it was a very interesting answer. He said there is no such thing as statistics. He said, there is just individual karma. You know, you will either be kidnapped and killed by a terrorist or marry, not because you're the, the number nine in line and it had to happen. It will happen entirely and only if it's your destiny, period. There's just no, you can't quantify things like that. But uh, we were talking this afternoon about how uh, there's this great cosmic movement, and I was saying this at the beginning of this class, of the assertion of women in, in society because there's this need to balance this overbalanced masculine flow by a balancing of divine mother and feminine energy. So uh, a lot of uh, individuals and female bodies are being inspired to do many traditionally male things, go into politics, into medicine, into law, into, uh, into business, just all these things that used to be more the ballywick of souls and male bodies because uh, there's a, a karmic balance needed, cosmically, that's being pushed. But a lot of such women, uh, for many reasons, are not ending up with the families and the homes and everything that they wanted. And I remember sort of realizing, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I had said to a group of such women, look, you are the men you would have married. That's sort of the problem, you know? <laughs> it's, like, it's like male souls have come into female bodies to do this cross-gender sort of project. And so it's, it's a very peculiar mix. It's just not a time when everyone settles into these comfortable roles. We, we just have to be very uh, loose and creative and free about the way we're living, which is what people are discovering. And it's not inappropriate because we're, we're reinventing our own culture at this point. And, and we're, we're re we really do need to destroy a lot of fixed stereotypes about relationships. And one of the ways you begin is by just destroying what was before you really get comfortable with a new reality. That's why there's just this whole revolution about marriage and premarital sexuality and all of these sorts of things that won't necessarily last because it, it's not really a truth. It's, we haven't discovered a new divine truth. We're just in a transition. I remember at a period of time at Ananda Village, we were writing out the Ananda Rules of Conduct for Members. Swamiji wrote it. It's a little booklet. It's very interesting to read because it's really all about right attitude. And at that same period of time, we were sort of trying to come to grips in some way or another with the whole issue of sexuality out of, outside of marriage. Because we, we, here we are, we're a yoga ashram, we're you know, trying to set a, a new model, but it was, it was really completely hypocritical to pretend that sex was only within marriage. It just, you know, none of us had been raised that way. And to impose that reality on the group that was there, it was just been hypocrisy. And people would have just gone underground with it, and it just would have been a mess. At the same time, we weren't quite wanting to just sort of endorse um, a new lifestyle that we saw as merely temporary rather than a new truth. Um, so we sort of came up with some little rules that pretty much fell to pieces very quickly because it was even more than we could handle and just decided we've never interfered in people's lives. Let's just leave it. But in that context, 
when we were working on these rules, somebody said, well, why don't we put something in the rule about, you know, unmarried, um, that, you know, unmarried couples were sort of like to quantify. They need to be committed. And, you know, then you try to write down what commitment means and how it's going to look. And, you know, it just, we decided that unmarried couples who wanted to live together needed to be engaged. So, of course, people just became engaged. I mean, that doesn't work. <laughs> oh, we're engaged. Yes, great. You know, it, just, it was ridiculous. But somebody said to Swamiji, well, why don't we write that into the rule? Swami was silent for quite a few minutes. And then he said, you know, the things that we're doing here, Swami said on many occasions, and I believe it's true, that Yogananda predicted that cooperative spiritual communities are the lifestyle of the future. And therefore, what's happening at Ananda will prove in time to be far more significant in the evolution of culture and society than may show right now. And I don't say that presumptuously, I'm just repeating what he said. But he said, he was just silent for a long time, and he said, he said, I, I don't want future ages to know what it was really like here. <laughs> he said, I don't want to embarrass Ananda and Master's work. Because in time, it will all return to a more natural balance, because it's, it's more wholesome and more happiness-producing, truly. Um, but in the meantime, it's a free-for-all, so let's just... You know, let's just live with it and make the best of it in this context. Which is why, to come back to my subject, I haven't forgotten the name of the class. <laughs> Issues that are described in, in this chapter about communication and how to keep the wheels oiled, as he called it, are all the more important because there is nothing holding us together. Really, there is nothing holding couples together these days except our um, actual experience of wanting to be together. And it's a very important thought to keep in your mind. Um, Yogananda emphasized that friendship is the ideal relationship because friendship is entirely free. You know, a, a virtually every other relationship has some element, either subtle or overt, of coercion in it, right? You know, parent-child, you can't escape. Sibling, you can't escape. Anything that's a blood relation, you can't escape it. And marriage also, the thought gets in your mind, well, here I am and this is it. You're my wife, you're my husband, you owe it to me, whether you even think it or not, or you get this kind of uh, taking it for granted kind of energy. But you're friends, you're just friends because you want to be friends. Of course, you become a sense of responsibility for each other or commitment and so on, but still, it's free. It's freedom, I mean. That's, in fact, why Yogananda describe that the ideal relationship between guru and disciple is that of friendship friendship also. That's why Jesus in the Bible, toward the end of his life, said, you call me master, but I call you friend. And then he says, the servant is not privy to the master's business, but friend to friend we share. We share responsibility. And that was a challenge that Jesus was issuing to his disciples to rise to their own full relationship to what Jesus was giving them, to their responsibility for carrying on his mission, for the sense of eye-to-eye uh, -eye confidence that uh, friends have with each other instead of always being a little afraid and subservient. I mean, you can be respectful um, without being diminished yourself. So it's very interesting. So in marriage, the ideal that relationship that we're striving for is just that straight-on level of friendship where we're here every day and we're together every day, yes, we're married, but marriage is not our primary relationship. Our primary relationship is just friend to friend. And even if we weren't married, I would still be here. 
you know, just completely. You see how different that is? And, and if we have the sense of freedom with each other, we don't have the same feeling that we can just be or do anything we want. You know, and it's, it's the irony. It's just amazing irony that we often treat our spouse and sometimes our children and even sometimes our parents in ways that we never would dream of treating our friend. Now, isn't that ironic? Because we, we just get into this sense of over-familiarity that just, I'm with you, anything goes, kind of energy, or, or just sheer laziness. There's really no other word for it. It's just, as years go by, people tend to run out of gas. I mean, that's what makes a person old, is that they just run out of gas. The, uh, they no longer have something new to say about anything. Just give the same old answers. And Swami has, it's very interesting, one of his rules about communication is, to say, don't always assume that you know what your partner thinks, even if you have a good idea what they think. You know, just like, oh, he always likes two lumps of sugar in his coffee. You know how people say, you know, what does Harry? Why don't Harry always wants this? You know, but it's not, um, it's not the familiarity of sweetness. You know, the sweet sort of knowing how to please the other person. It's the familiarity of, well, there's nothing left to learn about this person. I know what he always wants. You know, they write novels about those sorts of things uh, because then he or she goes off and finds somebody who, who sees them anew instead of just seeing them in the same old pattern, which is the same as saying as ceasing to see who they are. You know, people change radically, and they're much more likely to change if we don't just keep expecting them to be the same. We, we help people continue to grow by perceiving them anew each time we see them. And at the same time, we also encourage our capacity to grow together if we don't hold people to the box that we've already put them in. If we, if we are too sure of what someone is and they begin to shift inside and there's no capacity to meet that outside, then often people separate just because they couldn't grow anymore in the box that someone had them. When I married you, you were like this and that's who you have to be. I, I, it was so interesting to me uh, for about maybe, I don't know how many years, four years, five years, I lose track of time now. At the beginning, when I first moved to Ananda Village, a couple of years or a year after I got there, I started working directly for Swami Kriyananda as his secretary. And uh, I would also often cook um, dinner for him and cook sometimes when he had guests and um, just various things. I think the word is personal assistant. We didn't have the word then, so I was just called the secretary. And uh, especially from 1974, 75, 76, when he was writing his autobiography, The Path. Um, that was the last book he wrote on a typewriter. After that, uh, computers came in, and as soon as computers came in, he got one right away because of uh, the ease, as he said, the ease because it, it's so much easier to keep your inspiration because there's so much less of a physical obstacle between your inspiration and the expression of it. But the path, he did on a typewriter, and he edits repeatedly. He'll go over a page 50 times easily. And he always likes to have a clean page to be able to see all the words without all the interruptions. So as a result of that, I typed that book over and over and over again. And uh, so I, would, I, would, uh, I had an, uh, another job elsewhere, and I would come in in the late afternoon with Seva and Kalyani and sometimes a few other people, and uh, uh, with his mail and various things, and then I'd type out 
you know, pages he'd just finished. I'd retype them all so he could have clean pages. Sometimes he'd work on them and I'd retype, you know, it would often go on into the evening. Many times during that time he would hardly have eaten. Later, in the later years, um, we established a program where there was, he had a, has, has had for a number of years now a housekeeper, somebody who sees that he eats, basically. But I would come in and often he wouldn't have eaten all day and, and he knew perfectly well that I had no life I had no interest, I had no life, except just what I could do to help him. I was a renunciate. That was just all that I was doing. He knew that perfectly well. But every every single day, you know, I, he knew I was eager to cook supper for him, but it would be like, do you have any plans for this evening? You know, just very indirect. Do you have any plans for this evening? And then, you know, no. Of course, I don't have any plans for this evening, but I would say, no, sir, I don't. And maybe, you know, a little bit later, it's like, um, there's some zucchini up in the refrigerator. You know, and then I would say, or it's like he would say something like, well, so-and-so brought some fresh zucchini over. Well, sir, would you like me to cook it for you for supper? Oh, could you? That would be so kind of you. And every single day, he acted as if it was a surprise that I was willing to. And every single day, he always approached it very politely, very courteously, not once did he ever assume what was so obvious, which is, of course, I would cook dinner for him. And it, wasn't, it was not a pose. It was not a technique. It wasn't something he read in a book of how to keep your employees happy. It was just his total natural response to life, which is, you're my friend. You know, even though I, quote, worked for him, that was quite incidental. I was his friend. And out of friendship, you know, would you, is it, is it, does it inconvenience you? Does it suit your plans? Would you mind? Would you be so kind as? Come to think of it, I haven't eaten all day, you know? And then I always got to say, yes, sir, I'd be happy to. But it was such a, uh, you know, as the years went by, it was so remarkable to see it just so consistent. And I've thought so, so many times what a perfect model that was. And how often we just treat each other you know, the closest people in our lives, the ones who are the most important to us, we just treat each other like, don't forget the dry cleaning, you know, like that's the only role they have in your life is to pick up your blouses or something like that. Do you understand what I mean? And it, it sounds so simple, but you see, there's so many lessons implied in that. There's number one, very simple one, you have to stay awake. You have to always be awake. You have to always actually know that there's somebody else in front of you. You, you can't just like get into the habit, as, as I quoted Rick before, as, as Rick put it so succinctly once, treating another person like they're an extension of your own mind, right? And you have to always remember that this is a relationship of friendship. It doesn't matter if we've been married for 50 years. It makes no difference. We are together by choice. And at any point, you know, it doesn't, I mean, it's not that it's about to dissolve, but it's always completely free always completely free. And of course, the more you treat each other like that, the more the chances are you will stay together because it's so much more fun. And and that also allows other people to surprise you. And therefore, they stay more interesting too because you're always just sort of like waiting to see. David sort of plays games with me. It's partly a factor that he pays very little attention to himself. He doesn't, uh, 
He doesn't love to just sort of mull over his own reality like some people do. And he has a, a somewhat of a, a poor memory, or at least he seems to, but I think mostly he forgets the things that he doesn't care about. So um, he's always surprising me. I recall after we'd been together maybe ten years, we were just somewhere where a deck of cards was put in his hand. And all of a sudden, he demonstrated this tremendous skill at shuffling. <laughs> you know? And it was like, did you play cards a lot? And he says, oh, as children, we played all the time. And, you know, shuffles like a master. <laughs> I mean, it's a small thing. It's a very small thing, but it's sort of like, it reminds you, I don't know everything about this person. And not only years before you met, maybe you met when you were children and you've always known each other, but nonetheless, you don't ever know everything about someone. But you will feel that you do if you treat them as if you do. You see? And Swami, you know, has the simple rule here, show appreciation. Uh, and as I was coming up the stairs, Don asked me, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat your question. Don says, what do you say if she says, how do I look, dear? <laughs> I says, say, you never looked more beautiful, believe me. Don then said, well, you know, what about the question of being sincere? <laughs> but I was only half kidding. In fact, I wasn't kidding at all. In fact, I was reflecting on this recently. It's just astonishing, you know, no matter who you are, it's just so nice to feel that the person you love thinks that you're wonderful. That you just, you never grow tired of it. But but it does have to be. It can't be, oh, whenever she asks, I say she looks nice. You know, how do I look here? Oh, you look really great, you know, like this. <laughs> But it, but there is also just this um, real appreciation where you really look at someone and appreciate them. You can tell them that they look wonderful, and then you can mention that, you know, that's not the most beautiful dress that I've ever seen before. But it's interesting. Swami, at one point, gave some interesting advice, which I've watched in myself. He says, you know, when she's just been shopping, and this is, you know, female-to-male energy here usually, she's just been shopping. It's so hard to buy women's clothes. I'm always trying to explain to David what a nightmare it is to buy women's clothes. You finally find something that isn't horrible. And you, you bring it home. It's been a whole day's job. It wasn't too expensive. And now you have it and you say, well, do you like it? I mean, you just, you want it to be okay. You don't want a real honest answer at that point. Because <laughs> it's just so deflating. And so let me just put it, if she's been shopping all day and she just bought it, she wants you to like it. And it, it's more important to, to flow with the energy than it is always to be factual. Now, that doesn't mean that you tell her you like this $150 dress when you're going to hate it every time she puts it on. But, but Swamiji has a, a marvelous knack for not deflating your enthusiasm. You know? And that, that's more what it is. I, I can't tell you the number of times David has this wonderful phrase. David is, like, so exact. He's the most exact person I've ever known. He's so exact. I mean, he'll wait five years to buy... He did wait five years to buy a sports jacket because he just didn't find one he liked. <laughs> you know, and he's... But he's, but he, everybody, he's right. You know, everything in his closet is perfect. Me, it's like, you know, I need it today. If it's not too expensive and it's all right, it's okay with me. This, what, David has this wonderful phrase called that's well, fine, but it's nothing special. <laughs> I've grown to hate that phrase. Finally, he, does, he doesn't use it anymore. He used it for years. To him, he, he was just answering, well, it's fine, but it's nothing special. Honey, nothing is special enough for you. <laughs> but I realized I really didn't want to know. At least I didn't want to know right away. 
I wanted to know that the color was nice. You know, it was a good bargain. Oh, well, I'm glad you finally found something. You must have been glad that you finally found something. You know, then little by little, instead of just, how do you like it? I don't. Like that. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but Swami remarks in, in one of the readings, the, um, the Sunday readings, on ahimsa, which is nonviolence, you know, and, and we n- normally think of it as pacifism or Gandhiism or something like that. But Swami remarks about how killing a person's enthusiasm is, is contrary to the practice of ahimsa. Isn't that interesting? And I finally put it together, and I mean, believe me, this is not a big trauma. I'm, I've just, I, when I was a nun, I just really looked forward to getting fatter and more plain as the years went by. And then I got married instead. With speaking last week, I was speaking the truth, you know. If you're in these relationships, you have to put out energy into them. But I don't naturally look toward these things. But I really began to watch the degree to which his just simple, honest answers would just spin me out, right? And it was one of those very instructive situations that I've talked about in here where I would have these big emotional reactions when he had put no energy into it. He didn't mean anything except it was fine, it's just nothing special. That's all he meant. I, it, To me, it would just wound me. You know, I would just go into hysterics about how hard it is to shop and how I don't really have any taste and I can't help it if I'm getting old. You know, these things would happen. And all he would have said was, well, it's nice, but it's nothing special. It meant zip to him. But I began to see it in terms of that question of enthusiasm. And that's a very, very fragile, that's a very fragile reality to to be able to keep a person um, having confidence and energy to go forward. I mean, I'm making it all about clothes. But there's just lots and lots of situations in our lives where, as Swami says it, um, it's so perfect, the sentences he uses. Think less about how you are going to declare yourself and more about how what you say is going to be received. Do you see what I mean? And, And we all think about how we're going to declare ourselves and we think very little about how it's really going to be received. So when she asks him, how do you like this dress? He just answers. He doesn't necessarily sort of see how eager she is for him to like it. Or he doesn't think about the fact that she spent all day looking for it or that the party is tomorrow night and if he doesn't like it, what is she going to do? You know, just sort of like all the levels or just how completely frumpy and awful she's feeling and she just needs to know that somebody still thinks she's beautiful. Now, you can, a person can't always know all of these things, but a person can know more of these things if we just take that split second to try to consider that this is a free relationship. This isn't a relationship in which I can just assume and do anything I want. You know? You just take the minute. Well, let me see it. You know, show me. Where did you get it? You ask questions. I mean, I'm playing this, this dress to the absolute end. But in many circumstances, when somebody asks you something, take the time to find out where they're coming from before you just tell them what you think. Think less about declaring yourself and more about how they're going to receive it. And if you don't know how they're going to receive it, take the time to find out. Because you may get some clues that tell you that your first impulse was really not the right impulse. You know, And this, these sound so simple when you say them. This is what we do in business. This is what we do with strangers. 
This is what we do with children. This is what we do in teaching. This is what we don't do in marriage. Now, somebody tell me why. Because we run out of gas. And and then we're upset that our primary relationship has also gotten sour because we've stopped putting energy into it. It's just the, the, the tremendous delusion of life is that we can put less and less energy into something and it will still give us more and more energy back. Duh. You know? <laughs> but in fact, that's what happens. Now, that doesn't mean, and it is true, you know, there's also just a relaxed familiarity. People, you know, you live with someone for a long time. I, I joke with David sometimes because he's always there, you know? No matter how late it is, he's just still there. <laughs> Honey, don't you have any place to go? <laughs> don't you have any other friends? <laughs> and I don't mean that, like, he doesn't ever leaves the house, but you know, it's 10, 11, 12, and he just, he's still there. <laughs> but it's, there's just, there is this constancy about it, and so naturally, it's also, as Swami describes it, you don't always want to interact. And one of the one of the wonderful things about just having a nice, comfortable relationship is that you don't always have to interact. I mean, David and I are silent a great deal together, because you know we're together all the time. There's just nothing. A lot of times, there's nothing to say. It's just very nice not to talk. I actually, I was standing in line waiting for an airplane. Two young, uh, younger than me women were talking, and you know, and I saw them in the restaurant, and they just sat there, and they just. They never said anything to each other, never. And they were just like, oh, can you imagine like that? And I said, easily. <laughs> I, just felt, I just felt I had to say something. I said, you know, I'm very happily married for almost 20 years now, and my husband and I will go out and often really not say anything to each other for quite a long time. He said, we're very comfortable. We don't always have something to say. Sometimes it's just fine. <gasps> I didn't know what to do. I really didn't know what to do. But you could also see that they were just so agitated that they really couldn't imagine just that kind of comfort where you don't always have to be in some thought like this. So, so it's, it's, Swami says, enjoy the stillnesses between you when they come. And, and practice knowing that there's so many levels beyond the verbal, so many levels beyond the physical. Um, just There's just so many levels of relationships. Of course, as Marilyn's saying, it helps if you're on the same wavelength. It helps more if, you're, if you are actively expanding your consciousness. You know, the more conscious you are through meditation or other practices of yourself on other levels, the more intuitive you become, the more, in fact, something is happening when you're not talking instead of just sinking into subconsciousness. But any couples that live together for a long time, there just becomes some melding of auras that just isn't really about all the words that pass between you. It's, it's just so charming to see how, how couples who don't look at all alike look very much alike. You know, there's, just, there's no resemblance in their facial features, and yet when you look at them, they look the same. Because all those years of shared vibrations just begin to just make this loop of energy around them. Um, but that doesn't happen if you're not actively engaged in it. you know. And you're actively engaged through appreciation. And that's why I think you can honestly say, you've never looked more lovely to me, ever. And there, I mean, I saw a cartoon like that, just an old woman, really old woman, and her really old husband, you know, just she looks at him and 
she makes some sort of wistful cry about how, uh, what she was like as a young girl. And he just says, I look into your eyes, I see the same girl. You know, what difference does it make? The body really will go away, but the spirit can just still be right in there. If you if you really love someone and take the moment to look at them, they probably will look beautiful to you. They ought to. If they don't, you need to work on it. <laughs> you know, you need to work on profoundly appreciating whatever it is that you're looking at. Um, if if it matters to you what a person looks like, you need to find a way to appreciate what they look like by looking at who they are, if there's nothing else to see there, so that you can honestly say that. And it just does wonders. I, I've teased David over the years, and he's he's gotten very good at it. I've reminded him that how little it takes to really keep me happy. You know, that just that just a very, very small, almost literally minutes a day of just real attention and appreciation. I mean, I'm saying this as a joke, but just real attention and appreciation, sincerely given, it actually takes very little. Because if it's really sincerely given, most of us are not, you know, just sitting there waiting like little puppies to be petted again. Most of us have our lives to live, and we're busy, and we're not always just wanting to just say, I love you, and you love me, and I love you, and you love me, and you love me, and I love you. And, you know, after a while, it's like, you know, don't you have any other friends? <laughs> but it's always just so endearing to be reminded that in the midst of everything that's going on, there's this sort of secret connection that you have. Just, it just takes so little to do that. But if it's sincerely given, um, that's the oil. It, the wheels never run dry. Henry, you were going to say something? Well, just to say because I, I just happened to be reading a, uh, a book by a guy in Gorma, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. And he's done re- he's, he did research-based um, couples work where he actually had couples come in a little apartment and they mm-hmm. wired them and all this stuff. And he's, his theory about... That is one of the key things that he observed, and he called it a bid where you you do something nice for a person or put some energy into the other person, and then they put energy into acknowledging it. And he said the couples that are successful that is by far the dominant pattern that they have. Isn't that interesting? But you can see how much is implied in that. They haven't gone to sleep. They haven't taken each other for granted. Within their own hearts, they're still fresh in their relationship to each other. They have the refinement to to see that that's important. I mean, there's just a thousand things implied in that. That's very, very interesting. And and when you stop doing all those things, you often stop doing really fundamentally important things, you know. And then sexuality also it dies because people start feeling used. You never appreciate me. You never say anything nice to me. The only time you ever come close to me is when there's sex involved. Especially women will just think, I'm not interested. You know, men may feel that way too, but especially women. You know, just everything else can begin to break down around that. I'm just a a paycheck to you. uh, All the things that there are. But if there's always that, that's why I say it. Really, (laughs) it takes so little, you get so much. It's really one of the most efficient things you can do is to just be appreciative. There was a man I knew once who gave his wife as a present. Okay. So you'll just live in terrible suspense. (laughs) What did he give her? What did he give her? Maybe he gave her a break. (laughs) As soon as I finish this, we'll take a break. 
um, his present to her was that every morning he gave her a compliment. That's a real smart one. Yeah, every morning he gave her every every morning he gave her a different compliment. Just think about that. I mean, whether you actually make it a Valentine or not, but just think about that every single day. Just think of something new that's really wonderful about the person you live with. I mean, maybe you repeat yourself because some things are really special, but nonetheless, very interesting, isn't it? So simple. And yet, what a great story. Okay, let's take a break. Ten minutes-ish. I think this Saturday I'm giving a Saturday seminar on guidance, inner guidance. Oh, here it is. This is. I was wanting to say there must be something else going on besides that. Next week, next week there's no class because we're having a retreat at Ananda Village. Many people will be there, and we'll, then we come back for two more. And then sometime after that, oh look, it's already out here. Starting in July, starting in July 10th, we're going to do, which is actually, I think it's about 14 weeks on the autobiography of a yogi. Okay. Um, we did Autobiography of a Yogi once, cover to cover. It took us two years, so we're not going to do the whole thing. What I'm, what I'm going to do, and I'll, I'll, I will pull it together prior to this so you can call, probably going to do some, I mean, I'm going to draw the chapters from the ones that are on the audio book. Okay, because those are the most, the main uh, chapters, and also that gives you the option of listening to them instead of just reading them. And I'll, uh, have to just look at it and just figure out how many we can do. So I might this might I might end up shortening this class by one week from when I started because I, I may end up being out of town a week that I didn't expect. It's gonna be Tuesdays. Tuesdays is the ever eternal book study class. And then this Saturday, um, June 9th, we're doing a class on how to know and trust your inner guidance. Same place, same station. And uh this Sunday, for those of you who are um, Sangha members, or almost Sangha members, we're having a, a, a meeting again right after Sunday service because of all this uh, adventures in consciousness that are going on with our uh, Guru Bhais in Southern California, SRF. So we just need to have a conversation and bring everyone up to speed, and it'll be very interesting. So plan to stay after service, munch a few bagels, and then come in and We'll have more. Not, nothing like the really the great outstanding giant meeting we had before, but nonetheless, it'll be interesting. Okay, I think that's it. Is there anything else I should tell people, Joe? That they... How long do you expect that meeting to go on Sunday? Will it be longer? I would say an hour is fair, because we never seem to do anything in less than an hour. <laughs> Even when I think it's going to be less, it's always at least an hour. People have too much to say, not the least of which is yours truly. So. Okay. Anything else? If there's time. Oh, um, choir. Yes. If there's time, yes, there will. And um, if it feels like it, we may just meet the choir beforehand and talk about what we're going to do, or maybe wait till it's over and see. That's probably the thing that will happen after it's over. I didn't even think about choir, Joe. I apologize to you. I never thought to ask. I'm not. I'm not quite totally tuned into that happening there. Okay. We always have two few days in the week. Okay, um, any questions or thoughts or anything before we roll on? I'm not really quite sure where we're going, so maybe are there questions or thoughts? Anything else? Oh, good for you. Thank you for rescuing me. Uh-huh. 
We seem to be kind of freeform tonight because I've been talking so much about communication. Everything that's in these chapters I've been talking about since the first night. So go ahead, Sire. Um, perhaps uh, um, as a male, so traditionally the idea that the male being the breadwinner, mm-hmm. um, it, it's challenging for me to think of a relationship in which money, the flow of money, or the, the providing of money is more on one, mm-hmm. one than the other. And that's always the case in, in, in every relationship. Well, unless you happen to just have the same income, it could happen, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, just your thoughts on how, how that dynamic can, can play out? And, um. Well, money, well, you know, money, sex, these are things people fight over. These are the things that destroy relationships. Uh, that they don't have to, but they do, because they're just big issues. Money is about... Uh, uh, Money is enormously about priorities, about value systems, about how you make decisions, about what you think is important, about uh, your sense of security, your freedom, uh, your sense of entrapment. Uh, it, just has, it, it just implies all sorts of things. If uh, other people's maturity, your sense of their looking out for your welfare, I mean, just it's, it's really not about money. It's about everything that it implies. So when you hit up into money issues in, in ways that are controversial, you really have to stop and ask yourselves, what are we really discussing? Because you're really not usually discussing $5 or $1,000 or $500,000. You're discussing how do we make decisions and what's important in our lives. We're discussing whether or not I really have a sense of trust in your understanding me and your looking out for me whether I really need to keep my options open, whether I really think that you're a mature person or not. And you can, I I mean, usually, not always, but sometimes when people want to keep their finances separate, sometimes it's it's not healthy. It's a a real sign of people Mm. not engaging with each other. On the other hand, I've known couples, I mean, I remember one particular time where I just said to them, you know, I really think the best solution is for you to really keep your money separate because just the way they each dealt with money was so different that neither of them could stand the other ways handling it. But in other ways, their relationship was really quite good. And since they both made a solid income and they neither needed the other to support the other, if they just left it to be one of those areas where it's your idiosyncrasy, you play with it, and it's my idiosyncrasy, and I'll play with it, but oftentimes, an unwillingness to combine finances is indicative of many other levels of fear. Um, but uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean you should push against it either. It just may mean that it, that we have so much going for us, let's not mess with this one. This one just doesn't work. Um, but, but as I'm saying, almost always you're not talking about money. You're talking about something completely else. I mean, that one of the hardest things in... in uh, close shared life relationships is quite simply what's important to us you know and that's what often happens when people who are devoted to the spiritual path get involved with someone who may not be because it just becomes when when you really get down to how are we really going to decide what we're going to do with our time with our money you know where will we take our vacations what will we do with our savings um, just things like that and and if one person's whole sense of the priorities of life are this, and someone else's are the priorities of life are this, you really can run into real big issues. I often say to people, 
And it's worth remembering that it's really not hard to love someone. You know, if you have a relatively expansive heart, you can love lots of people. And I don't mean passionate, romantic love, but you can profoundly and deeply love a lot of people. But to make a life with someone is, is, a, is a different thing. And that's one of the problems that people get into is that they love someone and they don't notice that we could never make a life together. Because just in every way that really matters on a day-to-day basis, it may be that our sense of priorities is completely different or our relationship to money is completely different or just many things that are just going to wreck the day-to-day experience. And as Swami says, I don't think he says it in this book, but maybe he does, you know, you should pick a marriage partner with at least some of the criteria uh, you would use if you're selecting a business partner. And that doesn't mean that there's somebody who's going to make a fortune for you, but somebody who's, who fundamentally you know you can work with on life and death, death issues. Otherwise, um, it becomes too uh, painful, and you can end up just not being able to maintain your love because on practical levels... You just don't uh, want the same things. Um, it's, so money becomes one of those. So the best thing to do is whenever we're fighting about money or disagreeing about money, ask ourselves, what are we really disagreeing about? The same with sexuality. What are we really disagreeing about? What, what's, what is the undercurrent issue here? What am I really saying when I say whatever I'm saying that has to do with money? And some people do... Um, just have to say certain things like, you know, I have to keep my own bank account because I know if I try in the name of whatever to give this up, it's a step bigger than I can take. And so we we say, you know, I love you, I really want to make a life with you, but if I go beyond this edge, the stress of it will destroy what good I have going on here. And so I'm going to need to keep my money separate. I've witnessed this much more um, at Ananda, especially at Ananda village where the lifestyle is more um, almost virtually everyone works within the context of Ananda village and for many years especially we just uh, were so impoverished well they're still pretty impoverished up there because of the lawsuits the date the oppression of all these lawsuits on us but um, we're pretty impoverished here, actually, when you think about it. Um, I forgot. <laughs> I've grown so accustomed to it, I didn't remember. Um, but I would watch the way people would play out their relationship to their own money in the context of Ananda over years because of all the years I've been there. And it would always be, you know, when they'd first arrive at to live in the community, which, especially at that time, the years I was there, it was a really a big sacrifice and a big step. You had to give up a lot to be able to do it. One of the wonderful things about our urban communities is you don't. You're living in an apartment on Alma, and then you live in an apartment in our community, and you've just changed your address. You haven't had to just flip out your lifestyle as much as you used to and still do to move to Ananda Village. But people, people's money to them was the symbol of the fact that they didn't really trust the community. And they really needed to keep their own money because as long as they had their own money... And people do keep their own money. You should understand it's not a communal environment. But people needed to have money. Really, they needed to have money because they didn't really know where they were and they didn't really know who they were with and they didn't really know what was going to happen. And as long as they had money, they had freedom. And you would watch over years, and I'm talking 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 
that that the need for freedom began to dissolve, and so therefore the need to feel that you had to have all this money in reserve, also you just began to give way because you had this sense of, uh, well, trust is the word I've used once, but just trust, that you just knew where you were, you trusted God, you trusted your environment, and you didn't need to be able to run away at any moment. And so it became less and less and less and less important to have uh, all this money of my own. And it's always very personal. I, I actually had a woman come to me, and bless her soul, she had the decency to be embarrassed. She was having a terrible traumatic experience because whereas their family income used to be 150000 it had gone down to 110. And she was, and this was even like eight or ten years ago, and that was a lot more money. And she was honest enough to be embarrassed by how stressed she was about it, you know. And of course, if you have a lifestyle that costs one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and you only have one hundred and ten, you do have a problem. I know one of the uh, <laughs> one of the you know vastly overpaid athletes uh, that we worship in this society who was who was getting his seven or ten million dollars and was fighting for it, you know, in the, whenever one of the sports teams was going on strike because they weren't getting $12 million, and, and one of these men not helping his cause very much says, well, you know, we need this much, this much money. We have a lot of expenses. <laughs> I mean, you know, so... But uh, um, everybody has a level of where they feel nervous, and it depends, again, depends on your karma. It depends on what you've been through. It depends on what's happened to you in your life. It depends how many times you've lived in a, a stone monastery without a penny and never cared. And it's just people get real funny relationships. I joke about this. Many of you have heard me say this. I, by the grace of God, I've always had a very very easy relationship with money. I've also, I've also always been taken care of. And I almost mean literally taken care of. Just I'm taken care of. I don't just mean by God, it's just sort of like, you know, just simple people around me, like husband and father and people like that take care of me. And I'm perfectly happy to be taken care of. Um, <laughs> and during the years in the middle, um, I had, I had, when I would say to people, when we lived in Ananda, we had no money. When the phrase no money means different things to people. To money people, it means no liquid assets, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or no money beyond the stuff in the stock market and the house and, you know, the car and so on. But when I meant no money, I meant no money. Like, I had no, I never, I didn't have a bank account for, you know, almost 10 years because I didn't have enough money to have a bank account. There was no point. It was just easier to cash the check and put the cash in the jar. <laughs> but I had a mystic relationship with that jar. It was this little pottery jar. It was opaque. It was very important that it be opaque. Because you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't want to be able to be able to look in there and actually see how much was in there. You had to just put it in and put the top on it and trust that there would be enough. This was my system. This was my great financial system. But that jar was a really important part of the whole thing because, you know, you develop these relationships. You have your own little superstitions that keep you going. And there was always money in that jar. It was God's way of keeping me going, and I never knew quite how much exactly, but there was always money in that jar. Then I uh, married David, of course, who's, who's more sophisticated financially than I, and I sort of moved into his house carrying the jar. <laughs> it wasn't even a particularly attractive jar, because, you know, in my position, you never actually bought anything. You just had what you had. 
<laughs> you know, it was sort of like I brought almost nothing to the marriage anyway, and I, you know, sort of like, what's that? Well, that's where we keep the money. <laughs> and I, I mean, I still remember him sort of like looking at it, and of course, with his highly developed aesthetic sense, he noticed that it wasn't even attractive, and, and he sort of like, <laughs> like he put his hands on it, and it was like. <gasps> Because like I could tell he didn't respect the jar, you know. And then I just sort of looked at him and looked at the jar like this. And he just so sweetly said, I don't think we'll need this anymore, you know. And, but it was a moment of just saying, all right, you know. I'm, I, I had my whole way of making myself safe. And now you're saying to me, accept something else that is unknown. And And it, it was, I mean... As I said, money for me was not is not a big issue, so I don't want to say I don't want to make more out of it. But but I I still remember very clearly him wanting to get rid of that jar, and and my sort of telling him, but if we get rid of that jar, you know, how will we know how much money we have? How will we have enough money? He he said that we would have a bank account. <laughs> I had to tell him that I didn't know how to balance a checkbook because I never had done it. Can you go to Stanford? I do. <laughs> but I flunked out. <laughs> but I never have. To this day, I've never balanced a checkbook. I just, and I sort of think, well, what happens you know, if something happens to David? My answer was, I'll bake cookies for somebody who'll balance my checkbook. <laughs> Although I'm more than capable of it, I'm sure. But the end of that whole story is, that's a little microcosm, a trivial microcosm, but these are real things. And you just, I'll tell one more story, which is very closely related to that. Sharon, is your question important, or can I wait till next week? Um, David and I went through a, a cycle, and I used this, this was a long ago story, but it was such a perfect example, it helped me a lot. I'd been married twice. My first marriage, I married a very fine man with whom I had a tremendous rapport, very, very good fellow, but we did not, as I often say, we didn't know what to do with our relationship. We just, I was 19, he was 21. We just had no idea what you do. So we just kind of made it up and made it up very poorly, and it, it didn't work out very well. It wasn't meant to be, but nonetheless, didn't mean we did it well. Now, let me think, where was I going with this? Oh, yes, but part of what happened in that was because I was actually looking for a guru and I didn't know it, you know, I just sort of discipled myself to my husband, who was a fine husband, but he was not a master, so it was, you know, just a teeny-weeny bit off balance. Um, and so, and he, being a person of strong opinions and quite willing to share them, you know, was quite happy to have someone who essentially wanted to do whatever he said. Why not, you know? We were, we were too immature to recognize this is not a basis for a marriage. Um, but... So when he would, um, either directly or indirectly, I would get the impression that something would be positive in our life together, I would do my best to do it. And I just essentially tried to mold myself to the image that he had of what I ought to be. And he was not a fool. He was very insightful. So it wasn't so terrible. But nonetheless, I, in out of my desire to cooperate with his image, I, I tried to do things that were not a natural next step for me. I tried to, to, to stretch farther than either I should have at all or certainly farther than I should have at that time. I made promises I shouldn't have made. He asked things of me he shouldn't have asked. 
you know, if we'd been more attuned to each other in a more realistic way. And none of this was done badly. This wasn't, he wasn't a bully, and I wasn't an idiot. It was just ignorance more than anything like that. I was a little bit of an idiot, but that's something else. Um, but uh, when I married David, you know, which was 10 years almost after that marriage broke up, a long time later, I'd spent a lot of time in between trying to figure out how something that had started out so wonderful and had, had been so painful to lose had been lost. And... Uh, I became aware of a sort of the syndrome I just described to you, that I made promises I shouldn't keep, I shouldn't have made, because I didn't have the power really to keep them. And then when I didn't keep them, um, it became a symbol of not loving him. Do you see what I mean? And so David and I went through a little cycle. Uh, I've mentioned to you before, which I always say with reverence, David is a wonderful housekeeper. He's so good. <laughs> you know, he's just very energetic, and he really likes a clean house, and so he puts out wonderful energy. And I hate to clean houses, really profoundly. I never will, I will never vacuum unless I'm in seclusion for like three weeks and I have nothing to do, then I may vacuum. And I particularly do not like to clean bathrooms. And before we got married, I told David, I don't do housework. I cook, I'll do laundry, I'll mend your clothes, I'll even iron them joyfully, but I don't do housework. And it was fine, because he did housework. So we had this wonderful little house, and he kept it wonderfully clean, and I cooked, and I took care of the clothes. It was a very nice arrangement. And uh, at the time, we I wore glasses. Um, and uh, so when I would go into the shower or the bathroom, I never had my glasses on or my contacts. So the other thing was that I always thought the bathroom was really clean, because <laughs> I couldn't see it. <laughs> and so <laughs> after a year or two of of him just really taking care of the house just wonderfully well. He, at, at just the right moment, in just the right tone of voice, in just the right way, he asked me if I would help clean the bathroom. It was a completely righteous request. There wasn't anything about it. It was unrighteous. And I really wanted to say that I would clean the bathtub, but I profoundly know that I hate to clean bathtubs. Just as simple as that. And I, no matter how much I loved him, I knew there was a really good chance that I would promise to clean the bathroom and I would never clean the bathroom. And it, it just like, it crystallized for me this whole, this whole reality of you can't ask something of someone that they can't deliver. 